NTU World of Wisdom. Welcome to High Impact Thesis. In this podcast, we speak with researchers from various scientific fields to talk about the motivation, goal, and potential impact of their research. We also want to give you a sense of how a PhD is carried out with an emphasis on the PH, the philosophical aspects involved in pursuing a PhD. Greetings, everybody. Greetings uh, from Singapore. And today we have a guest, uh, Mr. Said. Said, welcome to the Heat podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. All right. You're most welcome. And today's host is myself, Christopher Luanga, and uh, Ahmed Hussain. All right. So as we usually do, we would like to just get a little bit about you first, just the person. How do you get here? Uh, tell us who is Said for our audience. Uh, right. Uh, so I've been... Uh, uh, I've been a very simple guy. <laughs> I mean, uh, I did my uh, schooling and education uh, entirely in my hometown of Bangalore, India. So mm-hmm. I haven't really been outside of Bangalore, uh, especially for education purposes. So the very first time I've come out for education in Singapore. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, life's here slightly different than <laughs> life back in India, right? So just saying to it took me a little time. But um, yeah, I've been fond of science. Uh, I've been uh, fond of chemistry. So I took chemistry as my discipline in my uh, uh, senior high school and then my undergrad, I did chemical engineering, uh, did a lot of internships and research scholarships and then applied for a direct uh, PhD. I uh, avoided the master's uh, route, mm-hmm. so applied for a direct PhD and uh, got it here at mm-hmm. NTU. So uh, this is my final year now. I'm almost headed towards the final semester. I'm 25, so hopefully I... Uh, get my PhD before I turn 26. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <nice. laughs> yeah. Makes the rest of us look old getting that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, cool. So, well, Bangalore is more a uh, software tech city because yes. from what I know, it's a technology city. I'm wondering what is what is the focus as, uh, as yes. a city? What so would you say it's, is the it's focus? It's known for two things. Uh, the startup culture because a lot of uh, venture capitalists, angel investors, all of them reside in that particular part of town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the IT, right? So that you have a lot of tech parks right. uh, and uh, we attract a lot of uh, talent from mm-hmm. all over India. Mm-hmm. So they migrate to Bangalore and then they work in a lot of uh, you know, IT firms as in, in different, different capacities. Mm-hmm. So Bangalore's uh, local population has been steadily declining. So okay. it's uh, always been people coming from outside of the state uh, for, you know, uh, to migrate for jobs and, uh, you know, just better standard of living, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then why did you kind of went, you know, into the chemical engineering part? <laughs> is that <laughs> right. still, uh, is that a, you know, a common thing? Like people choose different... Um, um, no, it's, uh, it's it's not. Many people in Bangalore still prefer to uh, do uh, uh, go the software route. Maybe uh, CS, instrumentation, IT, uh, all mm. of these are very hot topics right. in Bangalore. But that's if you want to work in the same city you've grown up in. Mm. Um, I chose chemistry and chemical engineering, and uh, I wanted to move out, maybe seek life uh, abroad. So you know, experience different cultures. So yeah. Mm. All right. So so. Um... You are in India, then you want to study abroad. Yeah. Then tell us about what then did you decide to study? Broadly speaking, what field are you in? Uh, yeah. What are the general problems that your right. field handles? So many people uh, have this common misconception that chemistry and chemical engineering are related. They're, they're very different uh, topics. So chemistry is just uh, a tool. Chemical okay. engineering is just the application of things. For example, uh, chemistry is making paint but uh, upscaling it, right, making it an industry out of it, having it automated, making sure that every part is uh, working properly, that's chemical engineering. Mm. Like scaling everything from the beaker scale to, let's mm. say, a reactor scale, mm. right? mm. that's uh, the engineering side of things. Chemistry is just making something novel in lab, but chemical engineering is just like, you know, applying it at higher levels. That's an interesting distinction. Okay. Yeah. Um, so after four years of studying chemical engineering, I decided... Uh, I don't want to be one of those people who wants to change disciplines because there is no point you, that you study four years in a <laughs> discipline and then you change and do, let's say, any other job, right? A lot of my peers opted to go for an MBA. Uh, some even have chosen to go for, uh, uh, become a lawyer <laughs> after oh, wow. four years of engineering. <laughs> yeah, but I decided to stay in the core discipline. It's just uh, a principle uh, of mine. Uh, so, and 
which uh, better way to go uh, than to go to the top of the pyramid, right? So mm. the highest, the pinnacle of education is probably uh, doctorate philosophy in in your field. So I opted right. for this. Yeah. Did you have any other opportunities other than PhD? Um, or did you look for any other? Yes, I, I did. Um, so a lot of my friends applied for masters in uh, uh, the US, UK, and I. Uh, I also uh, did apply for masters. I got a few offers, but I still had my heart set out for PhD. Mm-hmm. And getting a direct PhD in the US is slightly more challenging because of you know finding opportunities and scholarships and so on. Especially a direct PhD. Yeah, without a master's, uh, you need to be like a really brilliant student. Right. <laughs> yeah, and have like some attractive uh, funding. Yeah, uh, it didn't work out for me, but NTU is a, a very welcoming <laughs> university and gave me an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, so you are now in your in the field or the work that you do right now. Can you give us a test of what it is before we focus very much into it? Uh, sure. What is it? Sure. Yeah. So. Uh, Historically, how it's been is that after all the industrial revolutions, we as humans rely a lot uh, for our energy needs on fossil fuels, right? Most mm-hmm. of our heat and electricity especially comes from uh, the burning of fossil fuels. Uh, uh, coal, oil and natural gas uh, constitute most of these. Uh, so what generally fossil fuel is, it's, it's a carbonaceous source. So you have carbon, you burn carbon, it produces CO2. You burn carbon in the presence of air, which has oxygen. And when you burn it, it's an exothermic reaction. You have hot flue gases coming out, say, 1200, 1300 degrees Celsius. Those hot flue gases can be used to run a turbine, a gas turbine, or they can in turn heat up, let's say, water to produce steam, and that steam can be used to run a steam turbine, mm-hmm. right? And what happens to those flue gases after they've done uh, moving the turbine? They just release as exhaust, right? So you have these stack gases and they just release it all into the atmosphere mm. that's why uh, the atmospheric co2 concentration today is about 420 ppm it was uh, 420 parts per, per million per million that's about 0.04 volume percent right and uh, 10 years Tell ago me, is that a lot or what, what, it, uh, that's that's, that's quite lot. that's quite a lot yeah okay uh, we've hit the record high for the past three million years for the past three million earth, uh, earth wow. years we've not had uh, such high concentrations Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's bad in a way because CO2 is a greenhouse gas. What it does is uh, a lot of the sunlight which comes from space, from the sun, right? Uh, Earth tends to absorb, right? Sunlight is just a mixture of a lot of radiation. Could have visible UV, infrared. Uh, Earth tries to absorb some heat and also radiates back some heat. So you have the atmosphere, which is like a blanket, and you have incoming rays and then radiation going back. Uh, if you have a lot of CO2 build up, it builds like this blanket and it absorbs all the infrared which is supposed to go back to space, mm-hmm. right? In doing mm-hmm. so, it just keeps the heat within the earth mm-hmm. and then that heat build up has caused uh, global warming, climate change, right? You have uh, uh, sea levels rising, you have floods in various areas, you have heat waves in certain parts mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you have uh, displacement. So a lot of issues caused by climate change. What we try to do is tackle this problem through our research. So we focus on fossil fuel generation power plants. So okay. uh, most of Singapore's grid is powered by natural, natural gas, gas mm. right? Uh, 90% of it, more than 90% of it is powered by natural gas. Mm. And there are very few carbon capture plants. When I say carbon capture, it's you try to capture all the flue gas coming out and mm. try to redirect it to, let's say, underground reservoirs or try to use that CO2 instead of just releasing it to the atmosphere mm. so that the concentration does not increase. In my research, we try to replace this old concept of fossil fuel generation and try to implement a new system mm-hmm. where the outgoing flue gas can then be directly stored underground. Mm-hmm. So when you burn, let's say, coal, oil and natural gas with air, air is about 79% nitrogen and 21% oxygen. So the mm-hmm. carbon is burned, it utilizes all the oxygen, but there's still a lot of nitrogen in the flue gas. And separating the two gases, nitrogen and the product CO2 from one another, is a very energy-intensive process. Okay. That's why carbon capture uh, is costly. Because you have to separate the nitrogen from the CO2 and then take away that CO2 from... Right? So, what we try to do in my research is burn the carbon fuel with pure oxygen. So, when you burn it with pure oxygen, the outlet stream is 100% CO2. There's no dilution mm. with anything else. So, your so, so so let me understand this. Yeah. In today's world, we burn with, with we do combustion with the 
oxygen that we have, the regular one. Yeah. And the system you are trying to implement is one that uses pure oxygen. Pure oxygen, yeah. Where do we get that or how do we get that? Yeah, so uh, it's not pure oxygen. So producing pure oxygen also is a very costly process, right? So I you have assume, to do yeah. liquefaction of air. You have to liquefy our air. Uh, it liquefies at negative 180 degrees Celsius. So that's a lot of energy that right there. Mm. Uh, we don't go that way. What we do is we try to utilize uh, uh, these solid oxides, right? For example, iron oxide is Fe2O3. It's just common. Uh, it's found in red mud, right? Okay. Sediments of red mud. It's a solid oxide. All right. uh, by property uh, of this solid oxide, it's able to donate its oxygen atom. So Fe2O3 can be reduced to Fe3O4, which is one lower oxidation state. And it goes to that lower oxidation state by donating oxygen atoms. Mm -hmm. And this happens at high temperatures and pressures. So if I were to put in, let's say, coal and iron oxide and pressurize the system and have high temperature, that coal will burn using the oxygen from the iron oxide. Mm -hmm. And that iron oxide will be reduced to Fe3O4. Now, once that is done, I switch the gas to air and regenerate the Fe3O4 back to Fe2O3. And then the cycle keeps on happening, right? So in one state, I can supply natural gas to Fe2. Let's say I have a bed of uh, iron oxide. Mm -hmm. I supply natural gas. All the natural gas gets combusted. All the Fe2O3 is converted to Fe3O4. Mm -hmm. And then once that is done, I try to regenerate it by passing air, right? Uh, Fe2O3 absorbs all the oxygen from the air and lets go of all the nitrogen, mm -hmm. right? So, so you're kind of using the iron as a... Vessel. Vessel, yeah. Too, yeah. Like oxygen vessel. Yeah, it's uh, what we call an oxygen carrier. Mm. Yeah, so that's the technical term for it. Yeah. Wait, so let, let, me, let me still understand it a bit clearly. Yeah. So you have uh, methane. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Then you put it close to the FeO3. FeO2, yeah. yeah. And then FeO3. And then you, you end up with... Uh, CO2. CO2. CO2 and water. Uh, so the hydrogen from methane also combusts to water. Mm, right. right, so you have water and you have CO2. Yeah. Then what do you do after that? So that CO2 and water is passed along. So those are our flue gases, right? Uh -huh. So those are high temperature flue gases. Right. And those would be passed to, let's say, heat up water or run a gas turbine. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. So, and in the meanwhile, you can have uh, another reactor where this spent iron oxide is sent to be regenerated. And you can have this cycle going on where one, one cycle of spent iron oxide is being sent to a reactor to regenerate, and then the regenerated iron oxide is being sent here to combust. I'd like to take a step back first. Yeah. Like, uh, can you maybe tell us about like other approaches that ha like, were already yeah, established yeah, yeah. before? Yeah, so there have been. This is like a fourth generation. So what we call this is chemical looping combustion, because it's a, the looping of a chemical through different uh, mm -hmm. reactors. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been three generations. So you would have heard of this thing called post-combustion capture. So post-combustion capture is where you have your regular combustion going on, right? You have coal being combusted and you have your fossil fuel coming out. You try to wash that gas with, let's say, a solvent, some sort of amines, right? So amines are able to strip off the CO2 uh -huh. and dissolve them. So you dissolve the CO2 in one of these liquids and then you heat up the liquid and the CO2 will escape. So that's one, but it's very expensive and very energy intensive to actually regenerate those amines. So mm. post-combustion. Then you have something called pre-combustion. Pre-combustion is where you try to take away the carbon from the fuel before you actually ignite it. So let's say you have CH4 methane coming in. You try to uh, do steam reforming. Steam reforming is where you pass steam through the fuel and strip away the C part of it, the carbon part of it, right? Mm. And capture it separately and you just have hydrogen and hydrogen is the cleanest fuel possible mm -hmm. because it just combusts to water mm -hmm. uh, oh so you remove the carbon even before yeah you, yeah before so that's pre-combustion again pre-combustion uses a lot of sorbents you need a lot of so energy for sorbent regeneration and it's not viable there's very few pre-combustion -ca pre carbon capture plants in the world right now mm -hmm. and then finally you have uh, what you call an oxy-combustion plant right oxy-combustion is where you combust in pure oxygen Instead of having air as the oxidant, you supply pure oxygen, 100% oxygen. Right. Okay. Yeah. But getting 100% oxygen, again, is uh, very difficult. You need to have cryogenic separation plants where you separate the constituents of air from uh, as nitrogen and oxygen, which is the two major parts. Yeah. But that's sort of, you can't, you sort of took uh, one step. 
yeah uh, beyond this beyond this right. right it is it is so chemical looping kind of comes under the umbrella of oxy combustion because we still have just pure oxygen right. uh, coming in but the source is different yeah and another metric to evaluate these carbon capture plants is their efficiency so you you guys know that all fossil fuels have some sort of thermal energy right you call that the heating value like the calorific value mm-hmm. right all mm-hmm. sorts of fossil fuels have it so let's say i have coal which could say have 30 megajoules per uh, kg so if i have 1 kg of coal it would have 30 megajoules of heat but if i were to heat it the amount of power i can generate with the turbine could just be about 10 right mm-hmm. one third of it i could only get 10 megajoules uh, at the end right. so in the in the 30%. process of conversion we lose 20 megajoules right so the efficiency of power generation is only one third 33% yeah. yeah so most of the traditional power generation plants are about 30 to 40% efficient mm. in that they only give a, give you that particular energy at the end most of it is lost in you know heat losses yeah mm-hmm. yeah honestly when i learned this i was very surprised i i, I you know the first time i was like is that what happens you know like 30% is all we get out of uh, yes. whatever we put in it's, same with the it's quite sad. with cars right with yeah. the And cars are even uh, worse, uh, right? Because yes, generally the engines are, I guess, not made to as high. I assume to make yeah. so many <laughs> in, in a short right. period of time, they yeah. cannot make them to such high efficiency levels. So it's not great. Yeah. Okay, so you your method, um, when you say that it captures the carbon, it's after the burning because your burner using Fe Fe two or three. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You still get uh, water and CO two. Yeah. yeah. But what you're saying is that there is now no nitrogen. There's no nitrogen right? dilution. Yeah. So because of that, it's what is the? Uh, it's easy to just capture all the carbon. Okay. And CO two is not a bad gas. Uh, it's it's bad if it's in your atmosphere. Mm. But if you've captured it in a pipeline, you could transform it to many chemicals. You can transform it to methanol, which is a okay. good source, right? Uh, mm. You can transform it to specialty chemicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, CO two uh, utilization is just another subject altogether, which many people work on. Mm. Uh, so if you have CO two as a starting product, you could have hundreds and hundreds of other products you could make. Yeah. So give me just a quick chemistry lesson here. Do we need the carbon in the burning, or it's not needed? Ah, uh, we do. You... We do. Okay. Carbon is the source of. Okay, so the carbon is needed. That's yeah. why we have coal and, yes. uh, and yes. wood and so on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I was because the other time you mentioned that yeah. you you remove the carbon. Yeah. and then you, you know like making yeah, yeah, CH4 so, right so, so yeah you once you remove the you carbon have... you still have hydrogen right? right so hydrocarbon is basically just hydrogen and carbon uh-huh. and both of them are efficient so burning of carbon and hydrogen are very exothermic reaction so okay. you have uh, a lot of heat produced and in fact coal is ranked based on the amount of carbon it contains right so you have something called anthracite bituminous coal peat and just coke mm-hmm. right and these are different ranking of coals based on the amount of carbon it contains so let's say 40 to 50% carbon would be anthracite Mm. bituminous would be somewhere around 30 to 35%. Yeah. Okay. So energy density wise methane and hydrogen which one is more dense or um or I think uh it's uh it's hydrogen's more dense per uh, on a mass basis. Oh, yeah. but volume is yeah. is yeah. I guess okay. Okay. And the how is the capturing of carbon done? That's I Yeah. yeah that's also a, a different area of research yes 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 so carbon capture uh, it's it's called ccus so there's carbon capture then utilization and then storage as well hmm. so if you don't have any use for the carbon you could just store it underground right so when you have carbon capture or done you have co2 pipelines going in and you could store it in like deep aquifers ducts rock formations and just leave it there for hundreds of years uh, it's just carbon underground i could you know solidify i mean after uh hundreds so it's just fossil basically yeah but utilization do, do we always get carbon dioxide or sometimes yeah it's just uh, dioxide because so, it's okay. burnt right so combustion is just adding oxygen to something so c plus o2 this co2 yeah but there's going to be there's going to be some carbon monoxide there as well yeah right? so yeah. if you have partial oxidation you could have some carbon monoxide as well mm. but you have to make sure that the combustion is complete mm. yeah okay So uh let me try to understand so the process the rest of the process is still the same we yeah. burn we get yeah. CO2 and yeah. uh, water yeah. and then we send it through a turbine or whatever we are yeah. using to extract the thermal energy from that system yes but after that you put it through your system where it's yeah. put underground or used to create other chemicals um, other chemicals exactly okay so 
let's go specifically maybe to the specific things you do or the, yeah. I guess the tools you use to actually yeah. do this uh, miraculous work. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Uh, first, let me take a step back and explain why this is done, uh, why we're relying on fossil fuels especially because uh, I know historically it's been this trend but now there's a lot of uh, talk about renewable energy, mm-hmm. right? Why are we not shifting towards renewable energy? Uh, why are we relying heavily on fossil fuels? Because it's estimated that we only have about 50 to 100 years of fossil fuel left, right? So yeah. we're going to run out of uh, fossil at fuels. Some point. Yeah, at some point we're going to run out of it and we need to have uh, alternative energies. So why is the research not focused on renewable energy? And the main thing has to be done with cost and infrastructure. Renewable energy, for example, let's say solar uh, and wind also. Wind has a lot of geographical limitations. Mm-hmm. You need to set up wind turbines in places where there's strong uh, wind currents and you know, you're able to capture all that. Even solar, right? So uh, you need to have, uh, you don't even have sunshine all the time, but even if you do, uh, you have to uh, store it for, let's say, cloudy and rainy days. Mm-hmm. So you need a lot of batteries to store that solar power. So renewable is constitutes very little of the whole power grid mix. Right. Uh, I think in the US, it's only about 14%. So 14% of US grid is just powered by renewable, but the rest is still uh, fossil fuels right now. Mm-hmm. So we can't rely on for renewable energy to power the entire system. And it's also got to do with uh, uh, not at the individual level. So people often make you feel guilty that uh, you uh, as the end consumer are uh, responsible for climate change. And it happens at the very gra- individual level. But actually, it's got to do with businesses. Right? It's a big... Uh, businesses and the big companies, schools, mm. hospitals, uh, all of these people have to try and switch and try to adapt. Correct. So because yeah. when these people are the largest emitters, right, the biggest uh, industries emitting CO2 are actually the transport industry, the cement industry, right, the power generation industry. So if these people are able to switch their means, uh, climate change, carbon capture, all is going to be much more mm. easier. Yeah. So to do this, uh, chemical looping, uh, we do tests in the lab, right? So to simulate carbonaceous fuel, we have gases, we have cylinders of carbon monoxide, we have cylinders of methane, we have air, nitrogen and all of these. And we have small kill reactors in our lab. And we have also these oxygen carriers. So we prepare oxygen carriers, different formulations of it. Uh, iron oxide is just a very simple oxide which occurs naturally. Mm-hmm. So it could be found naturally. Mm-hmm. Right, so cheap source, but there's also commercial oxides, for example, nickel oxide, copper oxide, all of these are able to donate their oxygen atoms. Uh. Right, so we try to test these different formulations and different side of uh, reactor settings at different temperatures, pressures, and so on, um, with also different source of gases carbon monoxide, methane, hydrogen. And to do this, we have uh, uh, furnaces. We have uh, quartz glass reactors uh, to analyze the end gas composition. We have something called uh, gas chromatography. Uh, we have uh, FTIRs. So all of basically all the chemistry, uh, spectroscopy, and uh, uh, chromatography instruments there is. Mm-hmm. FTIRs are those the thermal cameras. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. FTIRs are infrared uh, spectroscopy mm-hmm. where you're able to analyze the end gas composition, and every gas sort of has a fingerprint. Right mm-hmm. at different wavelength, it emits and uh, absorbs different IR uh, mm-hmm. wavelengths. Yeah, so you're able to detect CO two has a particular fingerprint at a different wavelength, and so is CO. So able to detect the composition. Mm-hmm. And uh, how is the timeline for like a single experiment? Um, it goes on, so because uh, when I talk about looping, right, you talk about uh, combustion in one cycle, and then you talk about regeneration in one cycle. Yeah, one of the main criteria for a cheap oxygen carrier is its longevity, right? You need mm-hmm. to make sure that it runs as long as it can. Right? Yeah, continuously. And then you need to put in a fresh batch because it's degraded beyond repair. Right. right. So After like a few a cycles, there's a lifetime okay. for every uh, oxygen carrier. Uh, conditions such as attrition, right? So you have particles and maybe like after hundreds of cycles, they have just formed fines and they're not able to flow properly. Mm. Could be that they've actually lost activity. They're not able to regenerate themselves. Yeah. So things like these is why you need to put in a fresh patch maybe. And we test these for say 100 cycles, 200 cycles, 300 cycles. Yeah. Of different time durations as well. Some of my experiments go on for about a day. So I start my experiment and then I come back exactly 24 hours later and switch it off and then I analyze the results. Mm. Some of them go on for three or four days sometimes. Wow. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Isn't carbon monoxide dangerous to keep around? Yes, it is. It is. Uh, <laughs> we uh, <laughs> we don't have the license to keep pure carbon monoxide in the lab, so we have ten uh, percent CO in nitrogen or ten percent CO in argon mixture. Yeah. So. So one thing, one unit that you have, um, when this technology is deployed, what are you selling to people? Is it you just go and plug into the exhaust of say yeah. a vehicle or yeah. exhaust of a thermal power plant? Yeah. So, what, yeah. So, what do people need to do? And, yeah. And, and so, we're not just... selling this to the consumer. Okay. We're selling this to the big power plant guy, right? For example, uh, big companies who actually produce electricity, or mm. actually it's not even the country, it's the governments. So, when it comes to governments, when they pass legislation, uh, they have the say over what happens within their jurisdiction, what happens within their country, mm. right? They regulate the power plants. They set up targets. They have pollution control boards. They tell the power plant industry guys, okay, look, you're going to have to pay carbon tax from now on. So for every ton of CO2 you emit, you have to pay the government so and so much money, right? Mm. Um, so they could regulate them. They could tell them that, okay, look, you have to start capturing all the carbon coming out from your industry from tomorrow. And uh, they will either do it using the three already established methods or they can just uh, innovate and try to bring in chemical looping. That's what we pitch to these guys, right? So... If you get in chemical looping, uh, it's going to make it easier. And also, uh, chemical looping offers a higher efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. So I have done simulation studies in one of my research projects. I have proven that chemical looping can offer about 42%, uh, which is much higher than right. the present industry standards, which is about 37% max. You, you mean after you get the gases, you use them for another turbine-like process? Or, yes, or, yes, yes, yes. Uh, so your main goal was to capture the carbon. Carbon. But as an extra benefit, you're getting a higher efficiency. Yes, yes, yes. So where, where is the trade-off here? Where, where, what's there, the catch? There, uh, there is no catch. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you're using the heat for other purposes? Is that what yes, exactly. Uh, the heat is actually used for power generation, right? So when, uh, let's say I have two reactors, all right? So in one of the reactors, I have uh, iron oxide. It's just being fluidized. So it's just being uh, suspended in air, right? And let's say I have uh, gas passing through methane gas. Mm-hmm. It's going in, it's getting combusted, and the hot flue gases are going out. So these hot flue gases can be used to run a steam turbine or a gas turbine. That's one outlet, right? All of these iron oxides which are spent can be sent to another reactor, which is decoupled, right? Which is decoupled. Mm. And then I can have air passing through it. And then those keep getting regenerated. So iron oxides keep shuffling between these reactors. It's called a loop, a chemical loop. And fuel just keeps getting passed, combusted, and goes another way. So power generation is taking place in one setup. Carbon capture is taking place in one setup. And then there's also regeneration happening here. So so, yeah. so do people need to mine more iron to do this? Um, iron scale? is just one suitable candidate. Okay, so, but yeah. what, what, whatever this one is, yeah. the yeah. element that is yeah. trying to replace oxygen, then yeah. there is going to be another industry that's just dedicated yes. to supplying this sort yes. of say new oxygen. A new oxygen, yeah. Would that so, be a problem since people uh, would need to kind of mine it? Or I don't know how they... How you how do you guys make it now? Um, uh, at the moment, uh, so in research labs, we just buy stuff, okay. right? So we buy from our suppliers, our mm-hmm. chemical suppliers. But one of my parallel projects is to make sure that we have these source from a cheap uh, 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 cheap source, right? So it's uh, uh, one way to do it is I collaborate with some people in Malaysia who uh, have gone to the coastal sites and dug up some soil and they send it to us. And then we find out how much iron content is available in that particular mm-hmm. soil. And then I try to use it in chemical looping. Instead of using chemical looping from a commercial source, uh, buying the chemical directly, I could try to utilize the chemical uh, already present underground. But uh, it's uh, it's one way to cheap it, uh, so source it from cheap uh, uh, point. But also, it's not very reliable because you can't always keep digging and digging again and again. <laughs> yeah, right? it's good for business because you can create another industry supplying yeah. oxygen, oxygen like element or yeah. molecules. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's always go, there's, there's a lot of work going on in creating a lot of these formulations, uh, nickel oxides, copper oxides, chromium, manganese, uh, basically any transition metal oxide could be used. Which so one what, achieve the, the higher efficiency? Um, the higher efficiency, uh, so all of them have pros and cons. For example, uh, copper is, uh, copper gives you a lot of oxygen content. So it's, uh, generally thought of as a good oxygen carrier, but 
it melts very fast so copper melts at about 1050 degrees supply more so yeah yeah and you need to keep keep the yeah. temperature limited uh nickel again a very good candidate but nickel is very toxic so mm. you can't uh, you'll have problems uh, disposing nickel right uh nickel that element itself so it it be like a physiological hazard to people so nickel is used in batteries right it's hazardous it? uh, yes nickel is hazardous yeah, yeah. so so there's issues with every sort of uh, oxide uh, but the best is iron oxide because it's uh, naturally available it's abundant in the earth's crust so yeah okay so but like compared to the conventional way of you know uh generating power power yeah. from like these uh, resources is these these new methods are they uh higher in cost are they more expensive um they are more expensive to the industry yes mm-hmm. because if you are generating power the old way so let's say you just have a uh, uh, coal put in you combust it and then you pass it through a boiler produced steam turbine and that's it you release the exhaust mm. right uh, you're not spending any uh, any money there you're just supplying electricity to the end consumer but once you set up a system that's capital cost added capital cost right so you're trying to capture something so you need to have some sort of machinery set up Right. that's add added capital cost added maintenance cost as well so you need to run that power plant for longer time uh so all of these costs eventually add up to the industry mm-hmm. but uh, uh so it's 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 it's, it's again a trade off between cost versus uh, uh the damage you're causing to the atmosphere right, right? the ecological hazard yeah, yeah i, I think the, the you go ahead. sorry the, the, i guess the end result is again pushing people towards renewable energy because exactly. this extra cost again is going to be reflected yes on the consumer yes. side yeah and then people want to want to want to use less and less uh, fossil fuels fossil yeah exactly but for power producing guys i guess the only way that they would get the technology is if they actually is a legitimate tax you know like there is a yeah. cost now a cost. for producing co2 then you do the math and realize okay there's a cost to installing this technology but it's not as much as the cost that we have to incur uh, either by tax or whatever form right Yes. because right now it's for sure it's an expense that it's <laughs> that is not easy to justify unless unless uh, somehow you're being you're being uh taxed or or something yes. some financial punishment right? yes um okay uh, i was just reading something right now because i was sure. you know someone was talking about uh what they did was that they captured the carbon yeah. and then used it to used it to make methanol methanol so, all right and that was I was uh, that's what I was asking you yeah. before we started whether you've heard of this yeah are there any ex- extremely exciting i guess ways that we are using the captured carbon besides putting it to the ground yeah so storing underground is just one way uh you could of course produce methanol so methanol economy is where methanol is thought of as a fuel uh because it's a liquid fuel it's easier to transport uh it causes uh, less of a hazard but also it's alcohol so it's highly flammable uh, some extent <laughs> as well so uh, you could just hydrogenate the co2 so you have co2 uh, you could just pass hydrogen through it and then you get methanol right mm-hmm. uh, you could convert a uh, co2 to specialty chemicals let's say formaldehyde mm-hmm. uh, to carboxylic acids uh, a, a lot of other applications um other ways of um, dealing with co2 yeah that's pretty much it because mm. it's a starting reagent to lots lots of other hydrocarbons mm. so the utilization part of it is just that i know. guess you could also make diamonds um <laughs> since it's yeah. cc right yeah so, it's, okay. yeah it's, it's carbon maybe energy intensive yeah. is, but, but that's i think that's what's most exciting about chemical engineering yeah. when when i think about it it's yeah. that you you guys i'm not sure if it's chemical engineers yeah. or chemistry yeah. Yeah. folks that you have the ability to create uh matter from like any material out of yeah. any material you know what i mean like yeah, yeah, <laughs> what yeah. we're talking about is transformation you're, you're doing these transformations by by having a proper set of steps you can yeah. get from whatever material to whatever material i think that's pretty exciting and very powerful yeah um, uh, that's the most exciting but I'll, i'll share about my day in the lab, general day in my phd mm. life right so uh-huh. what i do um, so uh, my supervisor has some collaborations uh, with some people at nus uh so it's like a trifecta of collaboration so it's nus ntu and uh cambridge mm-hmm. uh, it's called create uh if you heard of the identity called create uh, yes. so we set up in nus uh the labs they are more sophisticated in that they have a lot of funding coming from the nrf which is the national research foundation 
funded by the prime minister's office all the funding comes directly from the pmo now because of uh, i mean we're thankful to the singaporean public for their uh, for mm. their timely payment of taxes <laughs> which <laughs> funds our research yeah so because of that we've got very sophisticated instruments instruments which could call up to, uh, go up to let's say $50000 right so just just one uh, let's say just a filament or even something as much as a transducer going wrong could have a downtime of 2 months Wow. causing yeah causing about 4 to 5000 in damages and a lot of downtime and your research is being caught up so um this is because these these things are have just been released so it's hard to find technicians or, um or? no uh, it's because these uh, instruments uh because they're all very sophisticated you also need a lot of expertise in handling them mm-hmm. uh yeah and also uh, their parts are very costly uh, very difficult to source some of these parts mm-hmm. and so on yeah so uh how my day goes is i have a few projects to work on uh, experimental side is one part of it but also i simulate this on uh commercial software i simulate these power plants i simulate their reactions you know chemistry can be simulated nowadays you don't need to actually run the reaction and sh- shot yeah, you can simulate yeah, yeah. yeah right you can simulate this on software so you mean you mean literally i define a molecule and yeah. another molecule and i define a reaction yeah. like yes, program yes yes so you can actually set up a reactor you can have let's say 100 kg of uh, coal coming in 100 kg of air you can set up what reaction what temperature you want to set the reaction at and it will show you what the outlet product composition would be and how much of energy would that give out so mm. yeah it's very cool software to do well, all that is there a super computer for that or is it uh, you saw uh, no, about equations just, uh, it's just proprietary software okay. which the school has purchased licenses for it is mm. pretty heavy uh, but uh, it does the job and it's pretty cool yeah <laughs> yeah okay. it's the thing that's really impressive right if yeah. you could do experiments in your room yeah. <laughs> do a thousand experiments that would have been impossible for anyone to do in a day exactly yeah yeah okay so you do experiments both uh, uh, in the physical world yeah, and uh, then in the mathematical right, world as well yeah exactly it's it's more like validation so you do some or something on the computer and then you go back to the lab and see okay fine the computer software is giving me these results is it possible to do it in the real world let's validate this so yeah. you do experiments and then you validate those studies What commercial yeah. software is this? Uh it's called Aspen Plus. Aspen Plus. Yeah. Mm. Okay, I'll see if I can buy it also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. Uh it's actually a part of most uh chemical engineering undergraduate uh uh curriculum. Yeah, mm. they they usually teach these softwares uh during chemical engineering. I did take some chemistry classes. Oh, yeah. They were so so non software oriented yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> just about orbitals and things like that that yeah, i didn't understand yeah. so it's nice that there is software yeah okay uh, you continue how does your day go then yeah so i head to the lab usually i have some experiments lined up so i start them early in the morning let's say i'm synthesizing something so synthesizing is just you're preparing some chemical right so you you just like add a bunch of stuff let heat uh, and then cool it down and then do whatever pre treatment post treatment you have to do to those uh What? Wait, but how the how do you plan for those experiments? Um so uh, so after every meeting with my supervisor, we kind of define what the next uh, week would go mm-hmm. and then he tells me, okay, so from this experiment we've learned so much, but we need to explore a little more. So let's try to run these at these conditions and so on. So you have a plan for the next week. Okay, mm-hmm. so Wednesday I'm going to prepare synthesize the chemical, Tuesday I'm sorry, Thursday I'm going to uh test it and then Friday I'm going to characterize it. and then analyze the results on Saturday and if things don't work then you have to repeat again <laughs> yeah exactly yeah okay um, so that's like how many hours of your um, day so uh, usually i spend about 3 to 4 hours in the lab like actually physically present in the lab uh, but the rest of the time is just waiting for things to work right so you just set up something and you're away and just hope uh, nothing goes wrong there have been times when things go wrong for example uh, let's say i'm trying to heat up uh, some sample in a alumina crucible so alumina's uh, a crucible is uh, like a holder like a bowl and then it goes uh, it can sustain up to 1000 or 1500 degrees right so when i'm heating let's say my sample in a furnace which goes up to 1200 degrees there's chance that the alumina crucible might crack sometimes oh, yeah. uh, so it comes back it's all cracked and your sample's all over the place and you have to clean up and you have to prepare a batch again yeah sometimes glass cracks Uh, and things like that so mm. yeah so uh, after that uh, there's analysis there's writing yeah it's 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 much like a standard uh, uh, engineering uh, 
experience. So you you have to like document every experiment. every experiment, yeah, every condition, uh, because uh, it so happens that sometimes uh, something goes wrong during synthesis, and then you get these miraculous results, and then both your supervisor and yourself, you both of you are stunned, and you're like, how did this happen? Uh, but uh, again, when you create a new batch and you test it again, the replicate doesn't work sometimes. It's probably because of some contaminant or something like that. But mm. yeah, so you got to do things at least in triplicate to confirm that, okay, things are working right. Yeah. So so this metadata, so to say, of the experiment, you know, the conditions yeah. and so on and so forth. Is there a software as well that you use for, you know, logging these? Logging this because I assume it's um, be... no, it's very uh, orthodox. It's just a pen and paper. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> so uh, we've been given laboratory notebooks by our school, uh-huh. uh, and I think at the end of our tenure, we actually have to turn those in because of uh, uh, because people who are coming after us may use them to reproduce uh, the same results. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we just log them. So I just log how many grams of each reagent did I use at what temperature, how many ml of let's say this particular solvent I add. At what temperature I run the reaction, and yeah. That'll be hard to search though. Like, how do you know what it did at a particular? Uh, I guess maybe it works for you. Yeah. I just wonder if for a, if you have a thousand experiments, yeah. it's going to be quite quite hard to yeah. uh, to search. Maybe that's something uh, someone can develop a software for these engineers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something that makes it easier. Okay. It would be nice if, like, there's something that just automatically records what you do yeah. and how much you added. Yeah, a lot I, of I, people try to use fancy iPads and stuff. Uh, you know, take down notes on the iPad, but uh, a lab is a very uh, dirty place. Uh, it's a very hazardous place. You have uh, when you're working with chemicals, you always have gloves on, mm-hmm. right? And you you don't want to use uh, stuff like that on your iPad because right. things can stay. One of my friend works in biology and. Um, uh, she told me that once she was working with cell culture and she had, let's say, bacteria on her hands, on the gloves, and then she tried to answer the phone. So she picked up the phone, so the bacteria is now on her phone screen, and then she answers the phone, and then now that bacteria is on her face. Now she has an infection for a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Okay. so it's not advisable to touch anything with your gloves on, right. not even door handles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I still feel that there is not much... This you know because writing things in a yeah. notebook is something that the likes of I guess Isaac Newton were doing yeah. right. Like it's been a long time <laughs> since long then, time, so yeah. I feel that we could take more advantage of uh, things like video cameras yeah. that we yeah. have now, yeah. right? Like instead of you describing an experiment through a list of steps, yeah. Yeah. imagine pointing to things. Like yeah. I was doing this for one of my work also, one of my works, my projects cool. also, which is just documenting like uh, satellite assembly, for example, right? So traditionally, you actually have a list. You move this way, move this way, take this, and so on. But if it's on video, it's like, okay, here's what I'm doing. Like, it's literally within yeah. a minute, someone understands what's right. supposed to be done. Yeah. And I feel that maybe that could be a way to to improve the communication from one yeah. uh, batch of PhDs to the next. next right? Yeah, because, definitely. Yeah. Because there, is, there are new tools, and I think yeah. you, we should take more advantage yeah. of these tools. Yeah. What is the most exciting discovery you've made? Or... In you specifically, or in your field in the recent years, that, that um, would be worth sharing with our audience. Um, uh, right. So the most exciting uh, was uh, so my supervisor. I think in my first year, he approached me to work on this really exciting project, and both of us were not sure that things would work out uh, with this. But uh, within a span of say half a year, things actually did work out. Turns out it worked out so much that we've actually now filed for IP. Yeah, we have a patent application pending. Yeah, so uh, and that was a side project. It was not even a part of my actual PhD thesis, but now it's incorporated and it's kind of like the flagship project I'm working on. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, that was very surprising, but also it's taken away uh, quite some time Mm -hmm. from my actual focus on my PhD thesis. Uh, Because it's IP, I can't really discuss much about it, but it's along the same lines of chemical looping, but uh, like a parallel uh, side project. We collaborate with some people from MAE, and yeah, we've been working on this, so that That's was really exciting. School of Mechanical, yeah, yeah, aer- aerospace, no. Me- yeah, mechanical aerospace. aerospace. So you are under the School of Chemical and, and Bio- Biomedical, Biomed- yeah. Biomedical, Biomedical yeah. Engineering, yeah. and then there was also School of Materials yes. here at NTU. That's yeah. 
three uh, SCB I guess in school of materials there is some connection yeah that, no? uh, cuz yeah. I feel like your work sounds like material okay yeah, yeah so uh, chemistry uh, uh, in SCBE chemical engineering itself is uh, a minority uh, there's a lot of people who work in the biomedical and the biomolecular side of things mm. there's mm. many more faculties in that particular part of so it's two different divisions so mm. we have CBE and BIE which is the biomedical side uh, in CBE we only have a few people right uh, say people working in the field of thermodynamics heat transfer mass mm. transfer and chemical engineering per se but you have a lot of people working in biomedical imaging and uh, uh, yeah just uh, a lot of biology yeah i've always hated biology <laughs> uh, yeah i stopped studying biology after 10th grade wow. <laughs> i hated it so much the last i've studied is the plant cell and the animal cell <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but just i don't know how you cannot be interested in biology when you are a biological being <laughs> for your own good to know biology yeah. uh, okay and, and uh, i guess one one other thing that uh, i'm in personally interested in understanding from from the research that you're doing is uh, you've talked to us about the chemicals that are needed in order for you to do um, oxygen less I guess. Mm. not oxygen less in order for you to replace uh, oxygen that we use currently and then there is a carbon capture where you're capturing oxygen in this pipeline currently can, what is the status what is the main hurdle as 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 an overall technology um, um, where would we want to see the greatest breakthrough for people to accept this as a, a useful but also affordable technology for people to deploy um right so i've mentioned three different technologies before right post combustion and pre combustion mm. uh these would be m- more readily acceptable to industry because these are just retrofitting existing power plants mm-hmm. so you only have them burning it the old way all they have to do is add another carbon capture facility and then have the flue gas redirected there but chemical looping would require them to totally build a new set, setting right so because they have to bring in a chemical looping system which are two different reactors not just one where carbon yeah, yeah uh, coal is being burned so the capital cost is higher the mm. operations higher but if you are commissioning new plants maybe you can go for this system mm. but the existing power plants would probably not go for this system so it's difficult to pitch it to them they would mm. probably just go to retrofit and also mm. the lifetime of a power plants will less there's about i think 20 25 years and then decommissioning happens Mm-hmm. so uh one way to pitch this technology or for this to be implemented around the globe would be that government start commissioning new plants with a mandatory carbon capture facility either the old generation uh post combustion or pre combustion or something like chemical looping so yeah that's the way to, uh, i see it i think the pressure has to come from uh the higher ups uh governments and industries yeah so, so that they regulate themselves mm. But you mean if I wanted to build a power plant tomorrow yeah. is your technology ready that is my question. Is, oh can right I, can so I on take uh, it tomorrow. Yeah on the no? technology readiness level <laughs> I wouldn't say that uh, as ready because ah. uh, so it goes from lab scale to like a bench and then a pilot scale and then you go for like a big uh, you know a small uh, small pilot scale which is like a scale down so if you have a 10 megawatt power plant you would build like a 2 megawatt one and then you would scale up the microgrid yeah. yeah so we're still at that particular level we haven't like scaled up entirely i'd say we're still at a lab pilot where we're just testing things mm-hmm. this is not a very readily available technology as of today mm. yeah and like speaking of the costs again like th- does the amount of capturable carbon at the end and what and what we can you know benefit from it like financially does does it cover can could it cover the cost of this new technology yes it could it could yeah so once you have uh, the carbon utilized to produce some other chemical you could sell it right as as another industry so that would uh, kind of offset the cost you've spent in actually ca- capturing mm-hmm. the carbon so it is quite possible mm-hmm. yeah okay so then So where do you see this going like in the next 10 20 years? I mean honestly uh there's uh there's higher chance that renewable is going to uh dominate the market a little more because the research and development going on from the renewable side is uh much more fast paced right so you mm. have the cost of solar panels have been steadily going down 
Uh, so it's becoming cheaper and cheaper. Uh, people are more aware, right? Uh, a lot of people, a lot of households are shifting. They're trying to install solar panels in their houses. They're trying to switch to more renewable options. Uh, EVs are a big right. uh, industry now. So the way I see it, and also that we don't have a lot of fossil fuel left. So <laughs> right. uh, to begin with, so these for these technologies to be implemented, it's uh, quite difficult. But the way I see it is... Uh, a few select places might go for these uh, carbon capture systems. For example, places like Europe, where they have very strict regulations, some countries in Europe could probably go for this. Yeah. I but see. places like, say, India and China, US, where these are the biggest emitters of CO2, like on a per capita basis as well, it's very difficult for that uh, entire country to, like, you know, just... Uh, up and about switch mm, to mm. a different system of power generation. Yeah. But if we take just the, the core idea, right, like of chemical looping, uh, could this be transferred to other industries, other mm. like... Uh, yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, the, uh, we have chemical looping is just the concept. This science could be applied to a lot of things. Uh, we do that to produce uh, ammonia now, mm. right? So, for example, uh, you have... Uh, some nitrides, aluminum nitrides. Uh, if you know how steel is produced, a lot of the steel uh, waste, right, is uh, something called as dross, D-R-O-S-S. So mm -hmm. that has a high amount of aluminum nitride. So okay. it's waste from the steel plant. Uh, we could use that nitrogen, have water coming in, right, and that water would react with this aluminum nitride and produce ammonia, which is very different from the Haber process. The Haber process is the conventionally used uh, process to produce ammonia, mm. where you have nitrogen and hydrogen as two gases coming through on a catalyst and then producing ammonia. Um, again, so once that ammonia is produced, you have the nitrogen removed from the aluminum nitride, ALN. That can be passed. We could regenerate it by passing a separate nitrogen gas and so on and so forth. So this looping technology could mm. be implemented elsewhere. It doesn't always need to be an oxygen carrier. It could be a nitrogen carrier. It could be any sort of thing. Yeah. This science could be uh, implemented in different domains. Hmm. Okay, that's nice. So, so uh, hopefully, if the world goes toward renewable energy, yeah. it means your technology will not have a market. But you're yeah. not worried about that because you're trying to solve the problem that renewable energy is trying. To exactly. Solve. Yeah, but, but your uh, it can be applied to other areas. Yeah. Yeah. Because science is. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, again, places like India and China rely heavily on their geographic. Uh, conditions which is they use a lot of coal right yeah so if they did even if a few power plants went for it it's uh it's going to be financially uh beneficial for them not immediately but let's say over a period of five years once they've covered their capital costs once they've gotten their full set of uh, investment back is when they start to be beneficial yeah so um christopher was asking about the, the hurdles in, in the yeah. process yeah but uh, what about like uh hurdles and challenges in your own research like in the let's say like the experiments or the tools you're using do you find anything that's not up to the what you hoped it would be like in terms of carrying out the, your tasks mm, uh, not really uh, most of the instruments most of the uh, machinery we use are top of the class right so it's the state-of-the-art facilities um, just recently, I visited the uh, synchrotron facility in Singapore. It's uh, mm. one of the few synchrotrons we have all over the world. I think there's less than 25 or something synchrotron facilities. Yeah, it's uh, so it's basically just like a huge donut of mm -hmm. superconducting materials. It's just super magnets and you have electrons flowing inside at the speed of light, right? Mm -hmm. So... I guess These, it'll be at almost the speed of light. Yeah, almost the speed of light. It's about okay. 0.9997C or okay. something. Yeah. yeah, it's about that much. So the Singapore one was donated by Jefferson Lab in the US, I think around 2010. And then they took over and then they had the Singapore synchrotron light source in NUS. Yeah. So again, we've been given this, you know, uh, state-of-the-art facilities to use and it's... Uh, like millions of dollars of funding, so mm -hmm. never really a problem there. So, but I guess yeah. my question is: Is the state of the art yeah. good enough? Yeah, like yeah. for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. then you guess you have solved the problem by now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, 
so we have we have the sources but uh, i think the gap is probably in literature okay. and that we're not able to find a uh, uh, particular and also it comes to problems like you know laws regulations economic cost right. like even if mm-hmm. you have something available is the industry going to adopt it because just because it works is not going to be used right, right. because right. there's also like lot of cost associated with it yeah makes sense well thanks for sharing about uh, carbon ca- carbon culture <laughs> uh, about using fe fe203 yeah. to do combustion yeah uh, that's pretty exciting i didn't know that you could i mean tingly i knew you could burn things without <laughs> <laughs> without the traditional not the traditional way so it's exciting to hear that there are these very very, very important applications um So tell us what you do besides uh, doing research what other things <laughs> get you excited right uh, uh apart from research yeah, i've i've been part of a, a lot of extracurricular activities uh, i've been uh, the hall residential mentor in the in hall 9 at mm-hmm. ntu for the past 2 years so as a part of my uh mentor Uh, as a part of things are required from me as a mentor we organize a lot of uh, workshops uh, for undergraduate kids uh, i'm mainly involved with gardening so i do a lot of gardening uh, every other weekend i'm trying to plant something or trying to harvest something yeah uh, apart from gardening we also play sports so uh, we play cricket and finally we're resuming cricket now uh, with yes. the big field yeah uh, exciting times <laughs> exciting times we can book the whole uh, field and play like a proper sport I also do quizzing. The quizzing is very uh it's a uh a very underrated form but uh, a lot of uh, pub trivia nights and you know quizzing we have a lot of quizzing groups in Singapore. So we okay. host like these online quizzes. It's uh yeah. So trivia <laughs> nights really exciting for me. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know there's such a thing. Like you just meet together to do a quiz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's just a bunch of slides and then you have like questions and answers and people just figuring things out. It's like a game show. It's like a game show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I also want to for TEDx NTU. I've been a volunteer for the past 4 uh, years. Uh as a part of uh, NTU Wow. We uh, it's a flagship event, right? Apart from the uh, hit podcast going on currently. <laughs> yeah. Uh Yeah so this year we're planning to have uh, the event in September 10 September so to our listeners uh, please join us on the 10th of September <laughs> and then you're going to him <laughs> hope this is out by the time <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll try we'll try to get it up for the 10th of September right cool cool yeah. exciting stuff yeah uh, anything else that you think you would like to share that we might not have been able to touch on due yeah. to the nature of our questions um I think uh, I had this idea of a podcast back in my undergrad days where, uh, you know, when you're looking out uh, for admissions uh, abroad, mm-hmm. uh, you have very few uh, people to get in touch with, right? Mm-hmm. So you have social like Facebook, you get in touch with people who are currently studying there. So let's say some uh, person from India wants to apply to NTU, they either contact the immediate seniors, people who've already studied there, who've gone to NTU, or mm-hmm. people studying here, they just... get in touch with email but it's a very archaic form of communication right mm-hmm. and all the information they get about ntu is just through the internet mm-hmm. right uh, i when i was coming here i just had like one image of ntu on google maps mm-hmm. and just the outer building and like okay this is how graduate hall too looks but when i actually turn here uh, turn up here at 5 am in the morning i'm like okay this is a very different building right yeah, yeah so true. i think um uh, one of the ways uh, that this information could be related to people all over the world is that when people start talking about their experiences the personal experiences uh for example how much does a phd uh, candidate on here how much on average do they spend on food mm-hmm. right what are the food sources available uh, how do they let's say go about shopping how they do various things right because a phd is just not about academics but also about spending four years of your life in right. a foreign country mm-hmm. yeah and uh one way to do it is to have pe- people come in from different universities and share their experience so that it's like a compilation of phd's from different universities and their life in that particular university mm-hmm. yeah so uh i ju- so a lot of juniors from my uh, undergrad university uh, try to get in touch with me and then uh they do ask me questions about my supervisor and research and the infrastructure but most of the other questions are just like how's living in singapore right. how's hall life 
how would it be if i lived outside is it going to be you know mm-hmm. monetarily possible for me am i going to save up stuff how's the food is there a lot of indian options available like, you know those questions which you have to tackle on a day to day basis yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. that's interesting yeah. yeah i think in the future hopefully we can actually have folks from other uh, universities here yeah. and, and then i think we're going to branch out to to make it to a uh, more accepting people from yeah. even non singaporean universities because yeah. we think that there is something common about phd here mm-hmm. as well as at uh, i don't know cambridge like yeah. connecting with them and i think that at the end of the day this podcast was built uh with that in mind right to share that the tools yeah. that's why we ask you specifically what are some tools you're using yeah. because you know ultimately not so many people know what we do as phds yeah. but also they don't know what tools you know some people yeah. think it's very hard some yeah. people it's think it's not whatever yeah, but yeah. i think the point is that the more we talk about how you do a phd exactly. the more people can understand whether they are yeah. uh, suitable to do it and so that's a very good point okay and on that note uh, say thank you very much for joining us uh, we really enjoyed uh, talking to you uh, i love it though <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right thanks and uh, bye bye for now <laughs>